I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for this psalm, a psalm that prepares us for the battles you call us to fight, a psalm that prepares us for a time such as this, when we must seek refuge in you. Father, may you be our refuge, our dwelling place, our fortress all our days. We pray that you would speak your truth, your good news, your triumphant news of salvation to us through this psalm. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we looked last week at the first part of this psalm, first part of Psalm 91, and we saw how this is a psalm of Moses written to provide peace and security in times of tumult. Uh, We might say including times of plague, because that's mentioned in this psalm. Uh, Last week we saw how this psalm calms fears and drives away anxiety. Today we're going to look at the rest of this psalm, and we're going to find this is a fighting psalm. This is the kind of psalm you sing when you're going into battle. Uh, This is a psalm for the battlefield. It is a psalm that encourages us to fight courageously and fight faithfully in whatever warfare God calls us to. In a general kind of way, we can say, as God's people, we're always fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil, that triad of enemies. But there are particular battles each Christian is called to fight, particular battles each generation of Christians is called to fight. Psalm 90 helps us fight those battles faithfully. God's paths for us are sometimes crooked. Uh, We know where God wants to take us, but sometimes it doesn't seem God's getting us there in a very uh, straight line kind of way. He ultimately will get us to that destination. But especially in times like these, we see that God's plans are not the same as our plans. But this psalm shows us that it's good. It's good that God is our king. It's good that God is in charge and we're not, because God knows best. This psalm calls us to trust in God, to take refuge in him in difficult times. Charles Spurgeon ministered in London in the 19th century during a cholera outbreak. And uh, was causing a great deal of suffering in the city and in his congregation. And for a period of time, Spurgeon was averaging doing a funeral a day. And uh, one day he had been summoned to do a graveside service and he was on his way home. And as he describes the situation, he said he was growing weary in body and sick at heart. Uh, He said, my friends seem to be falling one by one. And, of course, he was fearing for his own health, fearing he might be spreading the sickness himself. But as he was returning home that day, a shopkeeper had put out a sign in the window with the words from Psalm 91, verses 9 and 10, written on this sign. And Spurgeon read those words from Psalm 91, those words of encouragement. And he said, the effect of those words on my heart was immediate. My faith claimed to those words, and suddenly I felt secure, refreshed, invincible. I was given a calm and peaceful spirit. I feared no evil. He goes on to say, as he recounts this uh, situation, he says, I will always remember and gratefully acknowledge the providence that led that shopkeeper to put those words in his window. 
Uh, I want to say as your pastor, I want Psalm 91 to have the same effect on you that it had on Spurgeon. I want it to encourage you and calm you in the same kind of way it did Spurgeon. If you make the Lord your refuge, your dwelling place, your home, then you can take on the world. You can endure anything faithfully because ultimately, you know, nothing can cause you harm. In an ultimate sense, nothing can harm you if you've taken your refuge in the Lord. This psalm has to do especially with protection from satanic attack. Uh, That's what's most of all in view here. And that's why it's so interesting that Satan actually quotes this psalm in Matthew chapter 4 and uses it to tempt Jesus. He uses this psalm to construct one of his temptations for Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, it's uh, certainly a passage that's fitting for this season of Lent. Uh, Matthew chapter 4 records the 40-day period in which Jesus was in the wilderness, uh, and he's fasting in the wilderness, and during those days, Satan came and tempted him. And of course, there are three temptations that Satan presents to Jesus. And in Matthew's account, this is the second temptation. And it involves taking Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple, uh, which is interesting because this psalm starts with a reference to the secret place, uh, which could refer to the most holy place inside the temple. Uh, Satan takes Jesus up to the top of the secret place, you could say. Or interestingly, it could also be the it could also be described as the wing of the temple. The, the, the word for pinnacle could also describe the wing. So he takes Jesus to the wing of the temple. There's quite a bit about God's wings in Psalm 91. So that's also an interesting uh, connection. Satan takes Jesus to this place in the temple, and he tells Jesus to pull a publicity stunt. Uh, as it were. Satan says, if you are the Son of God, which we know Jesus is because the Father has just announced that at his baptism, Satan says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Throw yourself down from the wing of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, for it is written. And then Satan proceeds to quote Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan says to Jesus, look, God promises safety to you. God promises angels to protect you. He'll send guardian angels to look over you. Why not put that promise to the test? Why not show off what God has promised to you? Why not prove that the promises of angelic protection are yours by doing this? Now, a few things to notice here. There are certainly different ways to view this temptation. This temptation means a lot of different things. Uh, But I think the real key is found in how Jesus responds. Jesus quotes from Moses in Deuteronomy, which is especially fitting if Psalm 91 is indeed written by Moses. Jesus quotes the words of Moses from Deuteronomy. He says that uh, Moses commanded, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And I think that's really the key. What was Satan tempting Jesus to do? To put God to the test to presume upon God's promises, to say, hey, God's promised me angelic protection, and so I can even be foolish, I can be reckless, and God still has to keep his promise to me. That would be testing God. God has said, no evil shall befall me. That's that's the promise of Psalm 91. So maybe I can drive 150 miles an hour down the interstate and God's got to deliver me from danger because he said so. He said no evil would befall me. 
But see what Satan has done. Satan has twisted the scriptures. God doesn't cater to fools. Presuming upon a promise is not the same as trusting a promise. Testing God is very different from trusting God. If you test God, if you presume, what you're really doing is separating faith from works. Your faith in the promises is really a dead faith. We've seen that in the book of James, how uh, there's such a thing as a dead faith. It's a faith that says, no matter how I live, God is stuck with me. Even if I disregard his word and have no intention of obeying him, God's still got to save me. And the reality is there's no scripture that teaches that. If you look at Psalm 91, it is filled with promises of protection, but who are they for? These promises of protection are for those who have taken shelter under God's wings, not those who throw themselves off the wing of the temple. To believe God's promises means we have to also seek to obey God's commands. Believing the promises and obeying the commands go together. God's promise can no more be divorced from God's commands than faith can be divorced from works. The promise and the commands go together even as faith and works go together. You cannot claim the promises unless you intend to obey the promiser. So while Satan is quoting the Bible, we could say he's misusing it, misapplying it, misquoting it. We test God if we claim his promises without intending to obey his commands. The promises are for those who seek shelter in God. The promises of God belong to those who seek shelter under the wings of God. Jesus refuses Satan's temptation. He refuses to test God, uh, to separate the promises from the commands. Instead, what do we see Jesus doing? He submits to God's word. He submits himself to his father. He's submitting himself to scripture by quoting it. He's refusing to disobey God. That's part of what's going on there. But I think there's something even bigger happening in that temptation account. Satan was right to at least recognize that Psalm 91 is about Jesus. Like the rest of the Psalms, it is messianic. We could say this is a messianic psalm. It's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew 4 is not the first time Satan and the Son of God have met. They actually met in the Garden of Eden. They met in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, you might even think of Matthew chapter 4 as continuing an earlier conversation between the Son of God and Satan. See, it was Jesus in Genesis chapter 3 who came walking in the cool of the day, seeking to meet with Adam and Eve. And of course, Adam and Eve were hiding. Why were they hiding? Well, because they had sinned. Satan had entered the garden in the form of a serpent. And he twisted God's word there. He had deceived the woman, so she ate of the forbidden fruit and then gave some to her husband who was with her. And when the Son of God came into the garden and found the threesome, what does he do? He pronounces a mix of justly deserved curses and graciously undeserved promises. But the key promise is found in what the son says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's Jesus speaking to the serpent about the seed of the woman. Now, the seed of the woman. Who is the seed of the woman? Of course, ultimately, it's Jesus. It is the incarnate Lord, the son of God in human flesh, born of a woman coming into the world to do battle with Satan in human flesh. 
And Genesis 3.15 promises that in that battle he will be victorious. He will crush the serpent's skull under his feet. He will crush the serpent's head under his feet. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan quoted Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. But look at what's in the next verse. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You shall trample underfoot. Satan didn't quote that part. It's not hard to figure out why. Satan didn't quote that part, but it's really the key to understanding everything. What is the Son of God going to walk on? He's going to walk on lions cobras, serpents. Think about what that means. The Apostle Peter tells us Satan is like a prowling lion. Of course, we know Satan is the cobra, the serpent, the dragon. What is Jesus going to do? What will the feet of Jesus do? He's going to crush the head of the serpent under his feet. That's Jesus' mission. This is what he came to do, to enter into the field of battle with the dragon and to crush his skull under his feet, to trample the serpent down. See, Jesus is not going to dash his foot against the stone. He's going to dash his foot against the serpent in order to kill it. Jesus is the snake trampler. He walks all over Satan. He crushes the serpent's skull. Psalm 91 is about Jesus. I would urge you to go back through and read this whole psalm, every verse of it, read it through, and think about how Jesus fulfills everything that is said here. How this psalm is a description of how Jesus lived his life and what he came to do. Shows us how Jesus lived, how he trusted God, how he won the victory. Knowing this psalm is about Jesus keeps us from misunderstanding it. And I think this is really, really important. So you could read this psalm and really, in a way, misread it, and I would even say a satanic kind of way, and conclude that what this means is that the psalmist or the, the, the believer who applies this psalm to himself is not going to suffer at all. After all, Psalm 91 says no evil can befall him. Angels will always be there to guard him. So why can't we read the psalm and say, well, God has promised us a suffering-free life. Well, that can't be right. And we know that can't be right because the psalm is about Jesus, and Jesus certainly suffered. Indeed, he went through the ultimate suffering. He suffered throughout the course of his life, but especially in his three years of ministry. And of course, most especially when he was crucified, when he suffered not only the physical agony of the cross, but he suffered under the wrath of God, the curse we deserve because of our sin. So then what does Psalm 91 mean? Well, Psalm 91 is not a promise that we will never have suffering. It's a promise that we will have victory in the midst of our suffering. It's not a promise that we'll never endure suffering. It is a promise that we will have victory through suffering. See, this psalm is about Christ, certainly. That's fundamentally who it is about. But it's also about us because we are in Christ. Paul uses that language of being in Christ again and again and again. Colossians chapter 2, he says, Your life is hidden with Christ in God. In Christ, you've taken refuge under God's wings, as it were. Your, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That actually sounds a lot like Psalm 91 there in Colossians 2. 
And so this psalm doesn't mean you will never have trouble, but it does mean you will be victorious in the midst of your troubles, just like Jesus. You're going to experience suffering. You will certainly experience suffering. But Psalm 91 means the suffering you go through will not defeat you. The suffering you go through will not overcome you. In fact, it's going to strengthen you. You're going to be triumphant in the midst of your sufferings. You're going to be triumphant over your sufferings. Indeed, in the midst of your sufferings, you're going to triumph over Satan. You're going to win the victory over Satan as you suffer faithfully. Your sufferings will lead you to glory. That's the promise of Psalm 91. So look at some of this again. Look at verse 7. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand. That sounds like a pretty scary situation where everybody else on the battlefield is falling. And you're going to find yourself in some pretty scary situations in the heat of life's battles. But it will not come near you, the psalmist says. You're going to stand victorious on the field of battle in the end. That's the promise. That whatever happens, whatever scary things happen, they're not going to separate you from God's love. They're not going to keep you from experiencing that final and ultimate triumph in Christ. Or look at verse 10 for another example of this. No evil shall befall you. No plague shall come near your house. That's a great promise, isn't it? Wouldn't you love to be able to claim that promise? Wouldn't it be great if no Christians had to fear getting the plague? If God put up a shield around our houses so Christian homes were always protected from the plague, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? But that's not actually what it means. Rather, what it means is if the plague does enter your house, you're still going to be victorious. The plague is not going to win. Even if the plague brings death, It's not going to win because even in death, Christians are victorious. Because when we die, we don't just die, we die in the Lord. We have the promise of glory after death, the promise of resurrection in the hereafter. We have ultimate victory, an ultimate victory Satan cannot take away. Satan cannot snatch away the victory we have in Christ Jesus. And you know why Satan can't snatch that victory away? Well, it's because verse 13 Verse 13 is not only true of Jesus, again, it is true of us because we are in Jesus. You, each one of you, each one of you will tread upon the lion and the serpent. You will tread upon the young lion and the cobra. In fact, we we see this kind of promise made to God's people again and again. In Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus says to his disciples, Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, of course, we know in some ways the disciples were hurt. I mean, ultimately, the disciples suffered a great deal themselves. But in the midst of their suffering, they weren't really harmed. In fact, through their suffering, they were winning a victory over the serpents and the scorpions. Paul, in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, says to the church, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's a promise. Genesis 3.15, which is about Jesus, now applied to the church. Psalm 91.13, which is about Jesus, now applied to the whole church. See, we are snake tramplers, snake treaders, snake crushers. We are a race of people who trample the serpent underfoot. You will have trouble. I guarantee you that. You will have trouble. You're having trouble right now. But look at what God says at the end of the psalm. 
This is where we really see it all come together. These are the last couple verses. Because he has set his love upon me, I will deliver him. I will set him on high, God says. God says, I will set him on high. I will set my faithful one on high, the one who loves me. What does it mean to be set on high? Well, again, think of the temple mount. Think of the, uh, of the secret place. Think of the holy of holies. I will set him on high. That glorious place, that place of glory, that place of exaltation. I will set him on high, God says, because he has known my name. It continues, he shall call upon me. Well, see, why would you, why would you call upon God? Well, we call upon our God in times of trouble. In times of trouble, everyone calls upon their God. We're in a time of trouble right now. Who are people calling out to? Whoever they call out to, that's their God. You see some people calling out to the state because the state is their God. You see other people calling out to science because science has become their God. And and we as God's people certainly can appreciate the role that God has given to the state and the role God has given to science and to scientists. But we don't call out to them for salvation in time of trouble. They aren't our gods. We call out to the true God, the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here God says, when we call out, when we cry out to God in this way, God says, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. See, there it is. God says, I will be with him in trouble. There is trouble, but in those troubles, God is with us. We're never alone in our troubles. And that's why there's always hope. That's why you never have to give up or despair because God is always with us in our troubles. And you come down towards the end of the psalm and God says, I will deliver him. I will save him. God says, I will satisfy him with length of days, ultimately unending days, eternal life. See, you have hope because this psalm is true of Christ and you're in Christ. So now this psalm is true of you. You have hope and you have nothing to fear. You are victorious. You are victorious in the midst of suffering. You are victorious in times of trouble. You are victorious when it seems everything that could go wrong is going wrong. You are victorious. You are victorious because you are crushing Satan's skull under your feet. Every time you come through a trial and you've stayed faithful to God, you've crushed another serpent. Another demon's been trampled underfoot by a Christian. And so think about this as you walk with God throughout the course of your life, you know, as you live out your days, the Psalm 90 talks about it, as you live out your days walking with God, as you come to the end of your life, this is what you should be able to do, is look back over the course of your life and see a long trail of dead serpents behind you. Serpents whose skulls you have crushed along the way, the demons you've defeated time after time after time, as you have been faithful to God through one trial after another. Death has always been Satan's ultimate power. That's how he bribes us and blackmails us. He gets us with this fear of death. But if you are in Christ, if you are under the shadow of God's wings, if God is your refuge and your fortress, if you are behind his shield of truth, then not even death can really harm you. In fact, death becomes just a stepping stone to greater glory. And so what should you do? What should we all do? We must fix our eyes on Jesus. And in Jesus, what do we find? We find a peace that passes understanding, that guards our hearts. We find a joy unspeakable. We find we can even count our trials joy. We find we're able to stand firm in the field of battle. 
We can be strong and courageous. We do not have to fear the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that strikes in the darkness. You know, I've said it myself, and I've heard a bunch of other people say this too, that this, you know, we're now living in unprecedented times. And uh, I suppose if you take a really short time span, that's true. But, but the reality is we don't live in unprecedented times. There's nothing unprecedented about this. The church has been through this kind of thing before. The church has seen plagues before. In fact, the church has been through plagues much worse than this one uh, in her past. And you know what? The church has been through all these trials, these tragedies, these plagues, these pestilences. And the church has always made it through. And the church is going to make it through again. If the gates of hell cannot stand against the victorious march of the church, I can guarantee you that the coronavirus cannot stand in the way of the victorious march of the church. The Apostle John said it so well, our faith overcomes the world. Why? Because our faith is in Christ who has overcome. Our faith will overcome. We're going to overcome. We're going to overcome this trial. We're going to overcome this trial to gather in Christ. We can overcome any other trial God sends our way. You know, many things in this world are fragile. I think that's really obvious now. It's always the case, but it's especially obvious now. Your health is fragile. We know that in a new way. Your finances are fragile, uh, if you had forgotten that. But you know, one thing that's not fragile is the church. The church of Christ is not fragile. Because the church is a people who do not live under death's dominion. We do not live under the shadow of death. We live under the shadow of the Lord's wings. We live under the dominion of Christ, and Christ reigns in life and in righteousness. And so all of that is ours. We're not governed by our fears. We're governed by Christ. And so we're governed by hope. It's hope more than anything else that shapes our lives. The real news of today is not what you're seeing on CNN or Fox. The real news of the day is not about corona or about COVID. The real news, the news that matters, the news behind the news is the good news of Christ and his church. What Christ has done for his church, what he's doing in his church, what he's doing through his church. That's the good news. In the end, this pandemic will be just another blip. Just another blip. Just a a single dark thread and a glorious tapestry God is weaving. You look across history, there have been a lot of blips in the history of the church. There are a lot of blips in the future, no doubt. But this too shall pass. The church will not pass, but this will. Because God has given us victory. God has given us an eternal victory in Christ. Many things, no doubt, will change on the other side of this pandemic. In the aftermath of this pandemic, I'm sure many things will change. But one thing that will not change is the victory that God gives his beloved people in Christ. One thing that will not change is the promise God has given to us to satisfy us with eternal life and to satisfy us with fellowship, fellowship only he can give us. He promises us victory over Satan, and he's going to give us that victory. And one of the best ways, I think, to drive this home is to personalize this psalm. I encourage you to do this with a lot of psalms. A lot of you have heard me do this kind of thing before. But I would encourage you to read this psalm to yourself and plug your name into it. Anywhere where it's talking about the psalmist, 
Put your name in there. Or you can read this to one another and put one, other, one another's names in it. Let me show you how this does. I'll just I'll read it to myself. This is how I would read the psalm to myself if I were going to do this. It would go something like this. Rich dwells in the secret place of the Most High. Rich shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Rich will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him rich will trust. Surely he will deliver rich from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He will cover rich with his feathers, and under his wings rich shall take refuge. His truth shall be rich as shield and buckler. Rich shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall by rich's side, and ten thousand at rich's right hand, but it shall not come near rich. Only with rich's eyes shall he look and see the reward of the wicked. Because rich has made the Lord his refuge, even the Most High, his dwelling place, no evil shall befall rich, nor shall any plague come near rich's dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over rich to keep rich in all his ways. In their hands they shall bear rich up, lest rich dash his foot against a stone. Rich shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent. Rich shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver rich. I will set rich on high because he has known my name. Rich shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with rich in trouble. I will deliver rich and honor him. With long life I will satisfy rich and I will show rich my salvation. That's our hope. That's our hope. Let's pray together. Father, may we never desire our own security more than we desire to obey you. May we know that there is no security apart from obeying you. May we see that in this uncertain world, only you are certain. Only your gospel is certain. Only your church is certain. May we see that the only security we can ever have is found in Christ Jesus But in Christ, we have a certain and secure victory. In Christ, we have victory over the serpent. Father, fill us with hope, with an unshakable hope, an unshakable hope in our unshakable salvation. All in Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's now confess our faith together in the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. As God's royal priesthood, let us pray together the litany that is printed before you. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. For the gift of divine peace and of pardon with all our heart and all our mind, let us pray to the Lord. For the Holy Catholic Church here and scattered throughout the world and for the proclamation of the gospel and the calling of all to faith, let us pray to the Lord. For this nation, for our cities and communities, for our state and region, and for the common welfare of all, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For seasonable weather and for the fruitfulness of the earth, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For those who labor and for those whose work is difficult or dangerous and for all who travel, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For all those in need, for the hungry and homeless, for the widowed and orphaned, and for all those in prison, let us pray to the Lord. For the sick and dying, especially those suffering with COVID-19, and those who are ministering to them, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For all who are suffering in mind and body, and for our expectant mothers, for our older members, especially susceptible to the coronavirus, and for all those who are hurting and in need of comfort, let us pray to the Lord. For these and for all our needs of body and soul, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Grant, we ask you, Almighty God, that we may know the comfort of your grace through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by the patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, age after age. Amen. Almighty and everlasting God, who has brought us safely to this day, defend us in the same with your mighty power. Give us peace and prosperity, safety and security, and grant that this day we might not fall into sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by your grace at work in us, that we might only will and act what is righteous in your sight through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And hear us now as we are bold to pray after the manner that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, 
and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bless and preserve you. Amen. Amen.